Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus, and uh, welcome back, everybody, to another episode. Uh, another episode that I'm taking from the Naropa talks that Ramdas did around the Bhagavad Gita from 1974, and um, these are available uh, in edited form on. Uh, ramdas.org go into the store you'll find them uh, love devotion surrender something like that which brings to mind uh, this new uh, this is a, a little bit of a uh, brought to you by our sponsor which is love serve remember foundation uh, we are putting out a new film in our cultivating series uh, that features Ram Das and Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, K.K. Shah, our very, very close Indian uh, family member and uh, mentor. And it was he who first translated for Ram Das when uh, that first day that he met him in, uh, in India. And, uh, and a little bit of uh, me and Mirabai and uh, Ramesh. Uh, it's cultivating intuitive faith and true surrender. And the, these terms, faith and surrender, are uh, difficult uh, terms to really understand by our Western minds. And KK goes a long way to really elucidate that uh, and enhance our understanding. It's a, it's a really great, it's about an hour long uh, video. And um, you... Uh, We'll uh, be hearing this podcast um, uh, just before the video, which is going to, uh, the release of it is Thursday, uh, February 27th, and um, so do take advantage. Go to ramdas.org and you'll find a way to navigate over to it, and uh, please, uh, we ask you to continue to support. This film could only have been made uh, as a result of the consistent uh, support we get from everybody. Uh, there's quite a large community now that has been growing on ramdas.org, and it's uh, really pleasing to see. And as a result, we are uh, happy to uh, be able to keep putting together these films and webcasts, webinars, books. You know, everything we're doing uh, is... Uh, is coming to fruition the way that Ramdas had envisioned it when he, you know, we all agreed to put a website together, uh, you know, eight years ago, whatever it was, uh, to uh, share, which is what Ramdas has been about all these years. And so now to this, the reason this film has um, real connectivity to what Ramdas is talking about, because uh, you can't talk about. Uh, devotion and guru without talking about surrender and faith. So I think that uh, it's, it's, it's really a, a great uh, a companion to what he was talking about here. And, you know, um, so some of what the real issue, and, and it was interesting because he was at Naropa, which is a Buddhist uh, center, and uh, that was when uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, who we've talked about before, of course, was alive, and there, there was always this, uh, not struggle, but uh, back and forth around uh, our tradition, and this, uh, which Ramdas is uh, talking about here, the Bhakti tradition, and of course the Buddhist tradition. So he talked about the tremendous, well, he used the word struggle, the tremendous struggle going on between the head trippers and the heart trippers. I mean, that's how 
we've separated it into these two camps. And, and that would mean, you know, he talks about how we might make fun, us bhaktis might make fun of, uh, of the Buddhists uh, and, and talk about their spiritual cynicism, their kind of tough attitude where they're not going to buy into all that emotional crap of, you know, the, these loosey-goosey, love-and-light bhaktis. Uh, and and then the the bhaktis would be you know from their point of view uh, they would be looking at us as uh, you know loving hippies um, and uh, you know sloppy yucky mushy <laughs> kind of people uh, and and so he relates this <clears throat> excuse me to. Um, like it's a, it's a mountain and there are different paths, you know, and, but, you know, we start from this very wide base, which has multitude of paths to get to the top and you start from wherever you're at. And as you get up the mountain, all these paths start to come together and at the top it's very intermingled and you can't uh, really discern uh, one path being better than another or anything like that. Uh, and uh, so uh, what uh, he goes on to say, which is uh, pointing to really what this bhakti path is, what devotion is. And it's, uh, you know, he does use it in reference to, you know, the Buddhist uh, viewpoint and, and one of the things he points out though is it's kind of a funny thing and uh, he he talks about uh, you know traveling with uh, he was once traveling with some of Trumpa's closest uh, students and they you know he it was just in the car and he was listening to them and they were going on and on and on about all of the beautiful uh, messages they had gotten from Trungpa, the inter, you know, the connection with him, the interpersonal contact with him, and it was all spoken in the most loving manner. I mean, they were, they were loving him, and uh, it, Ramdas just thought, well, it just exactly reminds me of sitting around with my uh, guru brothers and sisters and, and talking about Maharaji like that. So there was a way in which when he pointed that out to them, they said, please, uh, don't uh, share that with anybody, okay? Um, so, um, but I think the key here uh, of what uh, this path is is uh, to, uh, to us and uh, to anybody who uses this path, um, in, in, here's, here's what he says. In order to absorb, you have to be very intensely one-pointed in where you are going, part of the process that opens you or that makes the whole thing much quote-unquote easier, which is an interesting word here, is an intense love for quote-unquote it. And that it is what? Love for the truth, love for God, whatever that represents to you, or love for the guru. It doesn't matter. But the emotional commitment is very intense. Um... So uh, w what happens there is that uh, you get lost at some point. You get self-identified with the guru. As Ramana Maharshi says, God, guru, and self are one. And uh, it, 
they say that in this Kali Yuga, in this age of destruction, very, very difficult times, and uh, just have to open up your laptop and hit Google, and you just, uh, you know, we're overwhelmed by this uh, dis- absolute uh, suffering that is going on at, at so many different levels in so many different parts of the world, and not to mention our own right here. Um, and uh, they say that the easiest way, and that's where this quote-unquote easier that he mentioned back then, is, is the path of love and uh, is the repetition of the name that that is the easiest path as it uh, circumvents, uh, you know, the kind of mind and uh, rationalizations that uh, really can be an impediment uh, and also can be very useful. I mean, it's interesting because when we were brought into this, I mean, we didn't choose Maharaji, you know, those of us who went to India and, and those of us since then who have met Maharaji and have been connected to him, uh, talking about guru, um, we were ch- we were chosen. In, I mean, we were brought into this, and we had no idea. I had no idea of what this was. It was only when I uh, when I met him, and I had this intense, first of all, uh, uh, intense knowledge, uh, not in my head, in my cells. That I, you know, this wasn't new. I knew him. I knew him from long time back. I couldn't quantify that in any way. It wasn't like I had a psychic uh, thing happen to me, but there was an intense love that happened, and that's all I wanted. I wanted to be next to that thing. I wanted to be as close as I could be. I wanted to absorb that thing within me. And that's what, what uh, and I look back in that now, and, and I had no way of, of, uh, of, no understanding whatsoever at that time. I just focused that, you know, I just wanted to be there and just absorb it. And at the same time, and not that Maharaji ever said to us, do this or that kind of teaching, but at the same time, the uh, we were, and I've said this more than once in, in these podcasts, how we were drawn to Buddhism, how we were... Uh, Vipassana was a basic training ground for many of us, not all of us, but many of us, especially in the early days um, for us. And, and Tibetan Buddhism, um, we, we met, again, many of us met uh, well-known, very, very high lamas back then, um, and through to today. I, I mean, not to mention His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Um, so there was a way that we were steered into... Uh, this path that was, uh, you know, it, we cohabited both the bhakti path and uh, and the path of intellect, uh, which, not that Tibetan Buddhism is that, by the way. I'm just, uh, my reference is only that they have a road map that certainly seems uh, as close to uh, understanding what reality is, as in my own experience, as anything that I've ever come across. Um and uh, uh, so I think when Ramdas talked here about, you know, there uh, are many paths that you can take at the bottom of this mountain. And then when you get up to the top, you know, they do come together. And, uh, you know, he mentions how w- just hanging with Trungpa was this loving experience. I mean, 
you know, so uh, the uh, the idea that uh, we get to at the end is is succinctly uh, said by by Ramdas. Uh, the guru, as a separate entity, only exists within the illusion of separateness. The minute it has worked to awaken us, it ceases to be anything. It's a self-destruct mechanism. In other words, at the point at which you actually merge with God-Guru self within, um, and this isn't like, okay, fun, you're finished, but as soon as you have some um, grasp of being fully uh, immersed in what that represents, which is love, then, uh, you know, the subject object starts to fall away and you have a different experience uh, of life. So uh, I think that's the most important part to, to realize. This is a method... Uh, it's a duality method by which we come to non-duality, and uh, and uh, and I do agree and believe this wholeheartedly that it is you know uh, the easiest path, the the path of love. But it is all you know the the subjective uh, cynicism that Buddhists have toward many Buddhists have you know that that wouldn't in those days we were laughed at. <laughs> I mean we were called light and lovers. Um, so that, uh, at its worst, it is cynicism that is not useful. At its best, it is discrimination that is useful. So onward and forward, let's uh, hear this. It's a great uh, talk. These these talks from Naropa are, are really some of the some of the finest uh, teachings that uh, Ramdas gave. Uh, certainly back in that day, in the seventies. Um, again, keep supporting us though, so we can keep doing this stuff. Okay. Uh, the donations are easy to find the uh, donation button on ramdas.org there's also maybe not as easy to find but if you can go through the Amazon portal uh, you know and uh, buy stuff through them uh, uh, that you like then we get a little piece of it meaning ramdas.org and the foundation Um, there are books stores you know all sorts of great books to buy and so on and just uh, you know keep keep uh, interacting it's a it's a wonderful thing it really is and we appreciate uh, we appreciate everybody here so here we are uh, ramdas here and now and uh, devotion and the guru from the naropa talks i'd like you to meet the uh, man behind the scenes because <laughs> uh, it's really his trip i am totally a uh, wind-up robot and you say, oh, now that's a hang-up-in-your-mind, and we'll deal with that. Watch your emotional reactions to all this stuff as you go along. Far up. So what we will do is, after I finish the lecture, we will do arti, which is the light ceremony to the guru, which we do every day at our homes, our respective puja tables at homes. And I'll, I'll translate it for you, and then we'll do it for you. And at that time, we will be offering, as we talked about sacrifice or offering, we will be offering food, which then becomes prasad or consecrated food through the process of offering it. And the food that we are offering is a huge vat of um, halva, which um, it's it's Indian halva. It's very nice. And uh, it was made with much love, and it has a huge 
Hindi Ram written on it in raisins. And uh, it was made for you, for the guru. It'll be offered to the guru, and then it'll be taken to the door. And as you leave, you will be given some prasad from this uh, experience, okay? Um, when you receive it, it might just help, if, since you might as well learn the Hindu traditions and play it. You know, you ought to be flexible enough to be a Buddhist on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and a Hindu on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Okay. So when you are being a Hindu and you take food, uh, the way to receive prasad is you hold your hands like this with your right hand on top, and a little of the food is put in your hand. You don't reach for it. You don't take it. It's given to you. Right? And you don't take it with your left hand. Okay. In India, it's very clear. You use the left hand to go to the toilet and the right hand to eat, and it's all very simple. We get a little confused here. Um, after uh, the arti, the light ceremony, then um, we will continue with the slide presentation, and during the time I'm show we're showing you slides, Rameshwadas is prepared of Maharaji, um, I'm just going to give you little stories about him and little one-liners of what he said and just convey to you a little bit so that you can visit with him. It's just visiting another being. You might not have a chance to go to India and if you did, he's left his body so it would be difficult. So uh, we're bringing him here through technology. <laughs> the technology of the heart. Uh, the reason we have to <clears throat> go to these lengths, if you will, is because the quality of bhakti or devotion is really not something that we can sit down and intellectually figure out. It is something that has to do with the heart. And there's a little absurdity about talking about heart trips. There's something that one feels or one experiences in a, a realm that is not necessarily conceptual. So that I haven't... Um, made this uh, series of lectures very, very much talking about devotion and love because I thought rather than talk about it, we just let it sneak in on us through the kirtan, through the singing, through the, the mala, the mantra of opening the heart, through just being together in love and let it all happen to us individually because that is the spirit of the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is concerned with service and with wisdom, the higher wisdom, but it is all ultimately in the Gita in a context of devotion. And chapter 12 is in a way the, the love focus of that particular bhakti quality of the Gita. But if you reflect on the way Arjuna is taken through the sequence by Krishna, you realize that at some point Krishna says to Arjuna, it is because of your love that I'm allowing you to hear all this and see all this. And the vision that is bestowed upon Arjuna, which is an incredible grace to have that vision, the vision of the cosmic forms, the vision to open the third eye to see without looking, and the awesome and in a way horrible or awful nature of the vision, that was only bestowed on Arjuna because of his love, really, and his devotion and the purity of his uh, relationship to Krishna. And if you trace the sequence in the Gita, you see that there is a certain, what we call lower knowledge, lower gyan, which led to a certain kind of faith, because faith is sort of the lower mind having the faith in the possibility that it all is something else, which is what the higher mind knows, but the lower mind doesn't. 
And that faith leads you to purification, which we talked about last time. And that purification, as you quiet down, you start to open a bit, and that allows you to have some visions or some direct immediate experiences, which leads you to a deeper kind of awe and devotion to it all, and finally to the higher wisdom, which is the wisdom of the Brahman and the wisdom of the Purushatma in relation to the Brahman. And oftentimes, I think that you may feel, especially as you are at Naropa, that there is a tremendous struggle going on between the head trippers and the heart trippers, between the gyanis and the bhaktis, between the people that say, be cynical, be tough, be cold, don't buy all that emotional crap, and the people that are saying, love, drown in the ocean of my love, it's okay. And it all looks sloppy and mushy and yich and... The intellect looks so clean and tight, you know. But you've got to see that it's very much like a mountain and that the different paths start from different parts of this very wide base of the mountain. And you start from where you're at. And then as you get up the mountain, these all things start to come together. And really near the top, it all becomes very, very, very intermingled. So that if in an advanced class or a weak moment, I couldn't be a weak moment. In an advanced class, you would get Trungpa, for example, to start to reminisce about his relations to his gurus or talk about the devotional quality of Buddhism. You would begin to sense a lot of these qualities which he uses. He uses words that are much different. He uses, I mean, the most emotional word he gets are things like warmth. See? Because he's being very cool. But when I'm with him, I feel this incredible, uh, loving, devotional being. Although I don't think that's his particular ray. And I think what you're being subjected to here at Naropa, in many different ways, through many of the different teachers here, is a recognition that the game isn't one of good and evil. You might sit around saying, look, he's a bad guy and he's a good guy, or she's wonderful and she's no good because they think that way. But as you get more sophisticated, you begin to recognize that as you go down the mountain, there are beings along the way down the mountain that are there to guide you, or that are vehicles of guidance, whether they think they are or not. They're placed in different parts of the mountain, and they represent what are called in theosophy various rays of God. And part of our work is to honor the various rays, honor the various rays through and realize that Trungpa represents a ray that is different than the ray I represent. It doesn't mean that the ultimate truth I can't share. Now the question is, how much your vehicle of getting to the top of the mountain should look exactly like how it would be at the top of the mountain? Or how much you can afford dualism to get to non-dualism? That's really the crux of the issue of devotion. Because devotion is a dualistic thing. It is devoted to something. And if you're going to have to give up subject-object distinctions, wouldn't it be better not to get stuck in them in the beginning? That's really the general way that the thought sequence goes. Well, the predicament is this, that in order to absorb the wisdom through this direct experience, you have to be very, very intensely one-pointed in where you're going. And part of the lubrication that greases the process or that opens you or that makes the whole thing much easier is an intense love for it. Whether you call it a love for truth 
or a love for God or a love for Guru, it doesn't matter. But the emotional commitment is very intense. Recently I was with some very advanced students of Trungpa's up in Washington State. They are sort of people who head these kinds of things we're into now. Not these particular ones. But. And we were driving back in a car from somewhere and I was sitting there and I, they always kid me a lot about me being this kind of slushy devotional bhakti. Oh, it's a very loving kind of kidding, I think. <laughs> and uh, at least it is the way I'm receiving it. If it's not the way they're sending it, that would be their problem, of course. Um, and they were talking about Trungpa, and they were telling Trungpa stories, which is a great uh, pastime among Trungpa devotees. And as I was sitting there in the car listening, I suddenly couldn't distinguish between this and sitting in India telling stories about Maharaji. It had that same total love and adulation, and you know what he did then? And, and then he danced around the stupa, and, like, and they were describing how he danced and what it looked like. And I turned around and I said, you know, you're nothing but a group of sloppy bhaktis. I can't stand you, you know. And, and they said to me, well, don't tell anybody. So I, of course, am doing that specifically right now. Because love makes the thing happen so easily. That opening of the heart makes it happen so easily. In, in the Psalms, David says in the Old Testament, because my heart was enkindled, my reins also were changed. And in that horse image, that uh, chariot image in the Gita, where the reins are the mind, and applying that, when my heart was opened, that made it easier for my mind to change. And that's really what the whole issue of devotion is, is a way of making it very easy to turn your heart in a certain, to turn your mind in a certain direction. And uh, at different times in the Gita, Krishna says one thing is higher than another, but in general, the devotional quality of whatever you're doing adds to what you're doing. And the whole business about dualism and non-dualism is, if you use a method that is dualistic, and use it with as much wisdom as you have, I can know perfectly well, as you will see in my talking about my guru, that that's not what it's about, but that's an absolutely first-rate vehicle through. And even though he knows and I know, and he knows I know and I know he knows I know he knows I know, still it's okay. The method works, and then as the method works, you go beyond method and the whole thing falls away. But it has to fall away. The minute you push your heart away because you think it's too shoddy as a vehicle, it's going to cling. You're going to have a turned off heart and it won't work. The game won't work so well. Because head tripping will only take you so far and then you become like sort of parched dry leaves. And Krishna says in the Gita, it's very, very difficult to go the route of merely identifying with the unmanifest, which is the way of Zen, it's the shunyata, the way of just letting go of everything, nowhere to stand. It's a very difficult way. It's a very, it's known as the, the, the path that has no railing, the high path that has no railing. It's like going straight up the mountain with no hand railing. And if you can do it, do it. If you can be it, be it. But the devotional quality which sneaks into all these methods just uh, makes it all go so much easier. Hafiz, the poet, said, O thou who are trying to learn the marvel of love from the copybook of reason, 
I'm very much afraid that you'll never really see the point. Okay? That if, to the extent that you try to think your way through this devotional issue, it's not going to make it. When I see people individually now and then, I notice how many people are just so heavy into their heads and they're just so afraid to love, just so afraid to let the liquid flow of the universe happen to them. They may be very much into their bodies and very much into their heads, but their heart isn't open. I, again and again I say to somebody, you know, it's just not a strong heart connection yet. Because to get through the door, you can't close off anything. It's all going to be wide open. The fear of opening the heart is the fear of new attachment. And the problem is that every method, as you know, those of you that have meditated for a long time, how trapping it is, how hooked you get on meditation. All methods are traps. And in my relation to my guru, at first, my love was so strong, all I wanted to do was rub his feet and look at his form and just be around him. And then as time went on, not that the love grew less, the love grew different, grew different, until I was very fulfilled just being at a distance in relation to him. And then as time went on, it kept growing deeper and deeper until finally I didn't really care whether I was with his form anymore. And then as I went deeper still, I started to relate to him in a way where it wasn't that man in India anymore. It was the essence of guru-ness. And then I began to experience it in myself in relation to him. And the whole quality of the dynamics of the relationship were changing as I was growing in wisdom and as my heart was opening and my surrender was greater. The way I've kidded about it is I worshipped his form until I suddenly realized that that was just the doorpost and I was just rubbing the doorpost. I've told you this. You know, I was just worshipping doorposts and saying my doorpost is better than yours doorpost. And I saw that was merely the door jam and you looked through and you kept looking through and each surrender led you in and in and in. And it was a method that took you right back to yourself and to be on form. And a lot of the qualities of renunciation or intellectual discriminations that are really difficult when you're trying to do them in a rajasic, I can do it type way, in the presence of love, they're incredibly easy. Like those of you that have had a really powerful love affair, love relationship, will recognize what it's like to care more about your beloved than about yourself. And you can go like you, your favorite food comes on the table. Can you imagine getting to the point where your main concern is that the other person have enough of it and that you're fulfilled that they should eat it? When you have a child, that's the kind of experience you get. And somebody says, aren't you self-effacing? Aren't you sacrificing to your child? But it isn't sacrifice, it's joy. And all austerities with a dry heart are really heavy. With love, they become like, oh yeah, wow, I'll do this for my lover. Do this for my beloved. I'll give this up. That'll get me closer. I mean, when you really want to get close to your beloved, boy, you can't give things up fast enough. You know, that's getting in the way. Oh, I don't want to read that. I can't do that because it'll keep me from my beloved. And we'll talk a moment about the intensity of that kind of love as it develops. One of the factors in enlightenment in Southern Buddhism is rapture. And rapture has that quality of the flow of feeling, flow of feeling. And it's a thing, it's a factor for enlightenment. It's a helpful factor for enlightenment. And so the method we're talking about is bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion, the yoga of the heart, the yoga of love 
of loving openness to God, to guru, to self, to God and other beings. The quality of love, as described by Mayor Baba, this is one of the most beautiful quotes that uh, I've read. It says, love has to spring spontaneously from within. It's in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together. But though love cannot be forced on anyone, it can be awakened in him through love itself. Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it catch it from those who have it. True love is unconquerable and irresistible, and it goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone whom it touches. This was the message of Christ. A being becomes love, and everything they touch is loved, is in the aura of love. And it's so interesting, the thing about it not being amenable to force, out of the best intentions, it still doesn't work. I can sit with somebody and I can see that their heart is closed and I want to say to them, open your heart. Okay. You ought to love more. And I say, what are you feeling? The person says, nothing. Okay. And then I try. I say, tell me about this and that. And then, what are you feeling? Nothing. Because I'm trying. I'm trying to coerce that person into opening their heart. When I finally stop trying so hard and I just hang out and I just love them enough, just be here in love, after a while, they, you know, the person says, I don't feel anything, and then they'll get up and they say, can I hug you? Yeah. Why do you want to hug me if you don't feel anything? I don't know. I don't... <laughs> Thomas Merton said, if you have love, you will do all things well. Corinthians. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not provoked, taketh not account of evil, rejoiceth not in unrighteousness but rejoiceth with the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hope all things, endure all things. Love never faileth. Every now and then in these lectures, I've dropped the line, but I've let it pass because it's a little far out for, without this course going on for quite a bit longer, I, the line, suffering is grace. And it's very hard for people to hear that. Suffering is grace. That when you've got all your troubles, all your sorrows, all your difficulties, all your weighty sufferings, which everybody has, that that is grace that's been given to you. And that's far out because it sounds so Pollyanna-ish or so masochistic or something. And it's only in this space of love that that starts to make sense. Otherwise, it won't make sense to you ever.
reason will never allow you to understand the concept of suffering as grace. But the love that Paul's talking about is not romantic love. It isn't the level of I love so-and-so for their personality. It isn't that kind of love. It's what's called conscious love or Christ love. It's not possessive love. It's a place where you meet another being in your heart of hearts. It's not a needful, neurotic kind of thing. It has a quality of freedom connected with it, which most people don't associate love with. They associate love with an intense, possessive quality. C.S. Lewis in Paralandra has conveyed that quality a little bit. He says, love me, my brothers, for I am infinitely superfluous, and your love shall be like his, meaning God, born neither of your need nor of my deserving, but just bounty, plain bounty. The love, like the Aditya mantra, is shines on everything independent of whether it is lovable or not. You don't just sit and judge whether you can afford to love the thing. It's just much easier to love everything. Just put the, it on everybody. And people who say to me, but I don't feel any love. I don't feel any of the stuff you're talking about. I keep remembering this Thomas Merton quote from Seeds of Contemplation. Prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. It's only when your despair gets greatest that that possibility occurs for that heart opening. So when somebody comes in and says, I feel nothing, I feel dead, it's horrible, to me that's the critical moment. That's the moment when the possibility of the heart opening, if the despair is just great enough. Sometimes you see it isn't great enough yet. They're still trying to think their way out. And I'd usually say, go away and suffer some more and come back in about a year. You know, you haven't suffered enough. Go suffer some more. People don't think that's compassionate. In our tradition of Ram, the statement is, Ram likes love only. A man who is able to know this can know. And out of traditions that we are familiar with, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. You take a line like that, which you've all heard thousands of times, you start to consider, could it possibly mean anything? Is it just a hype done by hypey people trying to control people for their own power trips? Or could it possibly be talking about something that I could open to? The history of devotional yoga is loaded with examples of intensity of love, where the love gets so powerful. Mayor Baba spent a lot of time going around washing musts. Musts are what are called God intoxicants. In this country, they would be put in mental hospitals and be considered psychotic. But there are some very clear distinctions. It's not that they are so much in the world that they're all screwed up about it because of their anxiety. It's because their fifth chakra is open and they've turned inward towards God and they couldn't care less about their body, about the social scene. It's just all fallen away. They can't keep it together. They don't remember their zip code. And Meher Baba used to go around and wash these musts, give them baths and keep them in ashrams and build places for them. These people that nobody else wanted to go near because they were just so 
crazy and flipped out. And we talked uh, one night when uh, a fellow was here, we talked about people who are going through stages where it's easy for you when they inconvenience you to say, well, that person's neurotic and I wish the hell they'd get out of the way. But there is another recognition which comes with your own quieting where you honor the fact that somebody is going through some very profound spiritual awakenings and that at that point they must be treated with a lot of love and compassion. And what we need is more ashrams of what is Trungpa starting with Maitreya, that kind of quality of place which is a uh, total care scene for people who are going through these transformations but with spiritual consciousness behind them. Ramakrishna said, cry unto the Lord with a longing and yearning heart and then you shall see him. People would shed a jug full of tears for the sake of their wife and children. They would drown themselves in a flood of tears for the sake of money. But who cries for the Lord? I mean, think about what you've cried for in your lifetime. When somebody put you down? When you lost something? You made a fool of yourself? And these musts, when they, this thing happens, this intense love, it's also referred to in the Bible, in Isaiah, when he's talking about these beings, and he says, they are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. There was a very, very beautiful devotee of God who sang, who created incredible songs. Her name was Mirabai. And this is an example of a song which, if you look at it from a hard-headed place, is absolutely grotesque. But if you can empathize with what it is like to love something so much, so much that nothing else matters, then you can experience what Mirabai is singing about when she says, Oh, black vultures, eat away everything of this flesh, but discriminately. Leave these two eyes, for they still hope to see the Lord. Oh, black vultures, pull out these eyes as well and take them to his presence. Only make an offering of them to the Lord before you devour them. This intense kind of... The body means nothing. Recently, um, we put out these records called Love, Serve, Remember. And in the album, um, I did a reading of the fifth uh, descent, the fifth chapter from Tulsidas's Ramayana. And Tulsidas, this is the kind of folk version of the Ramayana. And it is totally liquid bhakti love. And when you hear those records, you will hear the, what that quality is. Because I wanted to, I also read the third Chinese patriarch on those records, which gives you the other quality. The don't, you know, the total knife that's so sharp that you never even feel it cut. And this one is just, oh, it's just like drowning in it, drowning in, in lush devotion. And this chapter that I read starts out with this opening, which will give you a feeling of just how completely drunken Tulsidas is. As a, he's just starting a chapter, right? It's no big deal. He's just starting a chapter. And he's talking about Ram. He says, I adore the Lord of the universe, bearing the name of Rama, the chief of Raghu's line and the crest jewel of kings. 
the mine of compassion, the dispeller of all sins, appearing in human form through his maya, deluding potency, the greatest of all gods, knowable through Vedanta, constantly worshipped by Brahma, the creator, Shiva, Sesha, the bestower of supreme peace in the form of final beatitude, placid, eternal, beyond the ordinary means of cognition, sinless and all-pervading. There is no other craving in my heart, O Lord of the Raghus. I speak the truth, and you are the spirit indwelling the hearts of all. Grant me intense devotion to your feet, O Crest Jewel, and free my mind from faults. I bow to the son of the wind god, this is Hanuman, the monkey, the beloved devotee of Sri Rama, the chief of the monkeys, the repository of all virtues, the foremost among the wise, a fire to consume the forest of the demon races, possessing a body shining as a mountain of gold and a home of immeasurable strength. That's just the introduction paragraph. But you can feel the way of relating, of just loving and devotion and, oh, hmm, hmm. Just like sitting around and just like savoring your favorite food in your fantasies. Mmm. Oh, yeah. That kind of love, that kind of intensity of love. Now, how is all this love and devotion directed as a useful technique of sadhana? Like, who do you love? You love your cat? You love yourself? What do you love of yourself? I love your guru. What part of your guru do you love? And what traditionally has been useful is either that one connects to the concept of a supreme, such as the Lord God or Purushatma or Ram, Krishna, or that you find some form on the physical plane that you can love through, you can use as a doorway through your love to go through it. And that is what the technique of, the, of Guru Kripa is about. Guru grace, Guru blessing, the method of the Guru. And that is my method. I was recently asked to review a book, and uh, it was a, a book by some social scientists about some primitive phenomena, in which case they were ex assessing the Guru. And they lost me with this paragraph. They said, the Guru is a real or fantasied authoritarian figure whose basic function seems to be rep to represent a cultural sanction for the wanted or desired activity and by his presence to help bring it about. That is as far as the intellect could ever understand about the guru, because that's what it looks like from outside in. Because the way in which the, the relation of the guru works has nothing to do with the kind of intellectual process, as you'll see from the quotes of my guru later on. No known comparison exists in the three worlds for a true guru. If the philosopher's stone be assumed as truly such, it can only turn iron into gold, not into another philosopher's stone. The venerated teacher, on the other hand, creates equality with himself in the disciple that takes refuge at his feet. The guru is therefore peerless. 
And the way the guru, the relation of the guru works in terms of what we've been talking about illusion is beautifully, beautifully stated by Ramana Maharshi. See if you can get this image. It's like an elephant waking up upon seeing a lion in a dream. Okay? The elephant's asleep and it sees a lion in its dream which forces it to wake up. Just as the appearance of the dream lion is enough to wake the elephant, so also the glance of grace from the master is enough to waken the devotee from the sleep of ignorance to the knowledge of the real. It is sure and certain. You realize what the implication of that is saying? That the guru as a separate entity only exists within the illusion of separateness. The minute it's worked to awaken you, it ceases to be anything. It's a self-destruct mechanism. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.